Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA more at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org. Good morning. For our Every Day is Earth Day segment this morning, we are talking about climate change and the shrinking wildlife habitats, the rising sea levels and vanishing species, all big important ideas that deserve a proper exploration. And this is the type of thing that has been revealed in a book called The Atlas of a Changing Climate by National Geographic explorer Brian Buma. Good morning, Brian. Good morning. Thanks for, thanks for having me on. Now, Brian, where are you located? Uh, right now, I'm in Colorado. And you are also a faculty member at the University of Colorado, Denver, correct? That is correct. Yep. I'm an associate professor in integrative biology at that, at that university. Now, the one thing I love about your title is you are a National Geographic Explorer. And I thought, what a cool job. How does one get to do that, Brian? <laughs> well, indeed, it is. It is. And I'm very fortunate to have that opportunity and support from them. Uh, National Geographic has funded and supported several of my research projects uh, around the world and um, featured some of it in the magazines and things like that. And and they're keen to support, you know, um, science in interesting places. And so I've, I've been really fortunate to be um, sponsored by them. Did you have to apply as a professor for some grant or something? Is that how you got involved or how did you discover you? Yeah. Yeah, you do. You have to submit a proposal for work you want to do, and you always have to do that. Uh, you have to submit a grant for work um, you'd like to do with a full-on, you know, budget and plan and all that sort of jazz. And then you have to do it, you know, and and publish the results and and share the results with the public. So it's a it's a it's a pretty normal um, application uh, process for those funds. But competition's pretty stiff, so anytime you um, get funded, you can be pretty happy. Well, the new book you've come out with is a popular for popular reading versus a lot of professors do research and mm-hmm. come up with textbooks. So that's why this one is really yeah. impressive <laughs> to me because it's very accessible to anyone from young people to anybody my age and older who just want to know more about the, it's called the Atlas of the Changing Climate. So way back when you first applied for something, was your research in climate change? Uh, yeah, I've I've been studying um, environmental change for a long time. So I got into the field via natural disasters. I've done a lot of work in uh, landslide areas and wildfire areas. And then I've lately transitioned to doing that, but also doing a lot of big-scale, um, well, we call it biogeography, which is basically the science of what, what lives where and how it moves uh, in response to climate. So that's that's what uh, inspired this book in a lot of ways was um, this this desire to explain how the world works um, to other folks. I didn't want to write a textbook. Uh, it actually arose, the genesis of the idea actually arose um, when talking with a National Geographic writer about some of the work that I had done for them. Uh, and I had just come out, just come off an interview with a scientific organization, and we were talking. It was very nerdy talk, you know. <laughs> it was very, very nerdy sort of thing <clears throat> with this scientific group, and it was very exciting, and everyone was very happy, and I was buzzing coming off that conversation. And then I immediately called him, and his first question was like, "So, <laughs> you know, like, can you translate that for the rest of us?" And I thought, you know, 
we got to do that. You know, as scientists, if we can't, there's only a small proportion of people are scientists, obviously, and that's a good thing. We don't need everybody to be a scientist. We need teachers. We need cooks. You know, we need everybody. Um, so it's incumbent upon us. It's our responsibility in, in many ways to take what we've learned and then give it to other people in a way that they don't have to just trust us in the, in the way that they can, they can, they don't have to just take our word for it, that they can actually understand it and make decisions accordingly. So it's very encouraging to hear you, to hear you say that, 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 cause that was the goal was to take climate change and the effects of climate and really what drives climate and change emerges from that. And, put it in a way such that when I say, yeah, you know, the climate's changing, other folks don't just have to be like, oh, he's a scientist, trust him. They can (laughs) say, oh, yeah, I I actually, I I understand that now. You know, I've seen it. I've seen the maps. I've seen the satellite imagery. I've had it explained in a straightforward way, and, and it makes sense. And that's what I was going for. All right, so you've been this explorer, a National Geographic explorer. Where do you go? I, I've also had the opportunity to interview Will Steger, of course, who's a great polar explorer that everyone knows about. Where has Brian Buma explored? <laughs> well, most of my work is in Alaska. I used to be faculty oh. in Alaska. Um, but I also do a decent amount of work in Cape Horn. So just a few months ago in, in the magazine, you could have you could read about um, explorations in Cape Horn. Um we actually, a few years back, went down to the, the southernmost island in South America and found the world's southernmost tree, the last one. There's no trees south of that. It's you know the edge of <laughs> edge of all trees. What kind of tree it's, is it? I'm just curious. Yeah, sure. It's a, it's called a Magellan's Beach. Oh. It's not a beech tree, but okay. that's what the Europeans called it. It's its scientific name is Nothofagus betuloides, um, which you know it's hard hard to remember. So it's it's essentially a southern beach. It's this very cool looking um, tree. It's it's a it's a broadleaf tree. So it's got it doesn't have needles. You know it has broad deciduous, leaves. Deciduous, like, okay. Like a beach, but it's not deciduous. Oh, it's that's not deciduous. That, that's the interesting part, oh. right? That's the cool part. There's an evergreen broadleaf tree. Really. So it has leaves that kind of look like a beech, which is how it's got its name. They're about the size of a thumbnail, but it doesn't drop them. It's an, it's an evergreen broadleaf tree. Now, is the reason you went to see this particular tree on this trip was to see how it is surviving some of this climate change? It definitely was. No one had ever been to that area, really, to do any sort of work like this. No one had ever gone and tried to find these trees. It was a completely unexplored forest or unexplored a few trees really forest is generous um <laughs> but so we didn't know how they were doing you know we didn't know how they were responding and there's this question and so we need those data points we need data points in remote landscapes because otherwise we can't it's hard to know what's going on you know and people think you can see everywhere with satellite imagery and you kind of can but you can't actually um tie that to anything real um without going there and and sort of validating your assumption. So a big point was to go there and, and find those forests and see how they're doing. But the other major point was, was what this book tries to do, which is tell its story. You know, um, those, those sorts of um, individualized things, like uh, this individual tree, it's a nice anchor point for talking about climate and biogeography and, and really how environmental systems work, because everyone's seen a tree. And now we can talk about like, this is how the edges of tree life work. You know, this is how tree line works around the globe. And we have a, you know, a physical point to do it. It makes it real, you know, and that's 
like that story is actually in the book. There's a lot of anecdotes and stories of sort of trips and, and research expeditions and things um, in the book. And it's in there because that's the anchor point of, of the stories. It's, it's these, these individual stories that make things real and relatable, but then are tied usually via the imagery to the broader context. Yeah, because climate change in general is a huge concept. I mean, we just had the the UN's climate summit, and there's a lot of talk going on with not necessarily understanding everything and how it works. So as you were putting this atlas of a changing climate together, what would your statement be on the state of the Earth, the planet Earth, right now? Yeah, it's, it is a big thing, and it's a hard thing to grasp without, you know, with, without devoting your career to studying it. And I, and I, totally get that like that makes perfect sense you know we are small creatures our our um, perception of the world is, is pretty limited you know we can't see very far <laughs> we, we live in fairly can you know we see the the city around us a few miles around us uh, and so the the challenge i think for a lot of people isn't so much that the thing is is um unbelievable. It's just that it's so big, it's hard to really comprehend. It's hard to wrap your mind around why it could be a really cold day or cold winter in a given spot. And yet the whole world is warming. We're in Minnesota. So every time it's like 30, 40 below, people will say, see, we told you that warming is is a a farce. And so we get that here in it's looking at sure beyond that. So how do you tell yeah. people that it's not a farce and to go beyond that when sometimes you do, like you said, have a super cold winter, for example? Yeah, of course. And I get it, right? Like, I, I, I do understand that. And that so this, a big part of this book is like pushing that scale of perception, that idea that when you think about the Earth system, you can't think about the local scale alone. You really do have to think about the broader context. So, for example, the last couple polar vortexes, which, you know, mm-hmm. had people bringing snowballs to Congress and claiming the whole thing was a farce because it was cold outside. I was living in Alaska, and I can tell you what, I was on the beach in, in T-shirts. Oh, you know, it, it wasn't that it wasn't cold. It wasn't that it wasn't cold in Minnesota or the East Coast. Uh, of course it was, but it was warm elsewhere. Like, mm. you guys stole all our cold air. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so when you look at that, and the map is actually in the book, when you look at that, you can see that those sorts of outbreaks are not... Um, not global phenomenon. Even if everyone you know in your city or your state seems to have, be having a cold winter, that doesn't necessarily mean the world is having a cold winter. And so you can't you can't think about the weather in Minnesota without thinking about the weather in northern Canada or Alaska or even Russia. They're all connected, and it becomes really obvious when you start just looking at the maps, you know, and, and you sort of and you sort of have it explained to you. But but I totally understand why folks that haven't done that. Uh, why it doesn't necessarily make sense. And so I hope folks will approach this book with that in mind, that it's really trying to talk about the environment at the scale at which it needs to be talked about. Brian, a big part of what you talk about in here is the atmosphere, things like hurricanes and these uh, extensive storms, fires, et cetera, and how this is impacting us. Talk a little bit about that, of how the idea of climate change is affecting that sort of thing. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, one of our most sort of intimate relationships with the world is the atmosphere. You know, we're immersed in it all day, every day. And so as that changes, we'd expect to have, you know, new experiences. It's a very dynamic thing, the atmosphere. So um, it shouldn't come as much of a surprise that as we warm up um, the overall temperature, we're going to see more fires. 
um, this year fires were pretty bad. They're actually on average for the last 10 years this year, but um, uh, the past couple of years they've been extraordinarily uh, bad, and we'd expect that to continue. And that, you know, that, that simply makes sense, right? If it's warmer out, things dry out faster. But there's other there's other components too, like warmer air can carry more water. Like I think most people can understand that just from living, you know, winter, you know, <laughs> humidity goes down because it's cold and, and summer humidity goes up because it's warm. Well, that, you know, means it's going to rain more. And in Minnesota in the upper Midwest, it's raining more. You guys have, you guys have about 10% more precipitation on average than you used to. Drought. Not, drying everywhere yeah this oh, yeah, year correct. was a drought for example so was people, it? yeah oh okay. yeah but the thing is when we do have the rains they're more severe so instead of like getting an inch a week which is ideal you're getting seven eight more inches at a time yeah. which is problematic yeah and we have we have evidence for that now um in the sense of like it doesn't it's not just impressions from year to year you can look at over time obviously there's variability like if it was a drought year you know that those things do happen it's Actually, this year in Colorado, this we are likely to break the record for the latest snowfall ever recorded. It hasn't actually snowed in Boulder, which is really amazing. Yeah, which is amazing, and, and it's not likely to, and we're, so we're likely to set a record for the latest snow. So there's variability from year to year, of course, and that's that's I think what trips people up a lot when thinking about climate change because they think, oh, everything's so variable. You know, what does a few degrees here or there matter? Um, but when you zoom out. You know, when you look at the whole world, a lot of that variability goes away. You know, that that drought year that you experienced was, uh, I, I, you know, I haven't looked into that in particular, but it was probably um, complemented <laughs> by more rain somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And so the question becomes, where is it going and when is it getting delivered? And you definitely have more intense storms. So and that's going to cause all sorts of challenges, you know, more flooding, harder time to plant, uh, more fluctuations in lake levels. I, there's some real challenges associated with that. Do you think folks who study the atmosphere, climatologists, weather, meteorologists, are going to be having more difficult time predicting the weather? Because it does seem like it is more unpredictable than it used to be. Uh, It's a challenge. It's hard to say. That's actually a really interesting question. If you look at, this is getting a little out of my depth, but if you look at accuracy of like weather forecasts, we are improving. Like there's been a steady (laughs) improvement in forecasts. So I'll throw the meteorologists a bone there. Um, Certainly are uh, the challenges of historical systems being upended by what we're doing is real. And so what I mean by that is we can get good at forecasting the weather, but if we're constantly changing how it works, you know, by pumping more carbon dioxide or more methane into the atmosphere, we're constantly adding energy, we're adding um, what what they would call forcing, we're, we're forcing it differently, we're pushing it in different ways, then that would, you know, be a challenge. But the science itself is making huge advances too. I mean, it's unreal how how many cool new tools like new satellites, new sensors, new um, computer methods, better better computers and better models are coming online. So uh, we are we are getting better at forecasting the effects of uh, of climate, and we seem to, it, it's easier or seems to be easier to do at the global scale because you're zoomed out, right? A lot of that local variability sort of washes out, but I think people need to, science is amazing. (laughs) I was going to say, I think people need to be impressed with the progress they've made, but maybe I won't say what people should feel and simply say, it's amazing what folks can do uh, in atmospheric modeling these days. It's really pretty cool. So we're getting a lot better at it. 
One thing in the book you talk about, uh, there's a question you pose, do small changes in temperature really matter? And you've kind of answered that by, yes, they do. So what can be done about it? I think that, you know, you see there's a problem, you want to have a solution. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it, it comes down to just, just small changes matter. And it, it's, this is this, this is a scale problem just to illustrate small places in the location, a specific location probably don't matter all that much. Small changes everywhere at the same time, in the same direction, you know, that does matter. That's things like now all of a sudden we're losing ice rather than gaining ice and causing sea level to rise or um, ground to subside or whatever. But what can folks do about it? Well, that's that's a big, uh, again, another part of this book. It's not prescriptive in the sense that the book doesn't really say do this or do that. Because I want, through this, I want folks to have a appreciation for how the system works. And then that'll give them the tools to decide what they think is their best contribution. You know, one of the best things folks can do, or what, well, for me, one of the easiest things to do is I stop eating meat. Mm. That's not going to be viable for everybody, and I know I'm talking to the people in the Midwest, but I know it's not going to be viable for everybody, but for me, that was an easy thing to do because I didn't, it just doesn't bother me that much, and eating lower on the food chain saves a ton of carbon emissions. Other folks may choose to drive less, simply riding, riding the bike more often, pick up a bike, take public transportation. Voting is obviously a huge thing at a, at a political level, supporting the actions like, like COP26, so the, the conference in, in Europe that just ended, promoting those policies, um, wise investment decisions, investments in, in carbon neutral products or investments in technology. I mean, there's, people are clever, and, and I think there is reason to be optimistic. It's, it's hard to say that sometimes uh, because there's a lot of things to be alarmed about and we've already passed thresholds of extinction thresholds of sea level rise and thresholds of energy like there's a lot to be alarmed about and there's a lot of change that's going to come whatever whatever we do and that can be depressing but i think there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic too and it gets back to your question of what can folks do and there's optimism there because there's a lot that folks can do uh, especially if people do it together uh, in the sense of we can change how corporations run by how we buy sorts of things and, and what we choose to participate in. I mean, there's just a lot of reasons to be optimistic. We're clever species. Once we recognize a problem, we can solve it. And little things do add up, just like little changes to the globe add up. Little things at the person level add up, too. You just have to make sure you're being honest about how little it is or how big it is. I think I heard it was a national public radio story where it was a, a- climatologist or environmental person, I don't remember the title officially, but said, it's really too far gone in terms of the climate change. We can't go back because we can't create more ice. So is it? Are well, we, is it too late? Yeah. Where are we going to go from here then? Well, it depends on what you mean by too late. Is it too late to avoid all change? Yes, it's definitely too late to avoid all change. Unfortunately, all the action that people are starting to take now should have been taken 40 years ago when people started started sounding the alarm about climate change in the 80s. Uh, we will see change. We will continue to see uh, increased fires for a long time. The sea level rise, there's a good amount of sea level rise, several feet kind of baked into the cake at this point, so Florida's in trouble. It is too late to expect our actions to have no... Uh, to be to be able to fix it. If by fix you mean avoid any problems whatsoever. Like, that ship has sailed, and that's because we didn't act. Now, does that mean we shouldn't do anything? No, of course not. <laughs> we can still, we can still um, 
there's still many things to save. There's still many ways to adapt. There's still many um, species we can save from extinction and impacts we can mitigate and human suffering that we can avoid if we do stuff now. Because fractions of a degree matter, you know. And so like the, the COP26 summit that just happened in Europe, they were focused on limiting temperature increases to one and a half degrees Celsius. That's going to which is you know, about three degrees Fahrenheit, that's going to have major impacts on us. Like, like three degrees is a lot mm-hmm. at the scale of the globe, three degrees warmer. Uh, but it's better than two, you know, and it's better than two and a half. So I think we should continue to shoot for as little as possible, much less than 1.5. There's no reason not to do that. Um, but yeah, you know, we can't, we can't expect to get out of, of the problem, we've, the hole we've dug ourselves in. We're already in it. Um, the question is, how do we stop digging, <laughs> basically? As you watched the COP26 and kind of heard some of the news, I, the thing I got out of it was there's a lot of great ideas and thoughts, but is it just still more talk? Because a lot of these ideas and thoughts have been presented at previous conferences, for example. Yeah. They have. It, it's, uh, it can be hard not to be cynical about those things. Um, it, I mean, it really can. And I understand folks that are. I, I really do. Uh, I think we have to have a little bit of willful optimism in the sense of this is how things, when they do happen, this is how they start um, with these sorts of conferences of the parties where they're discussing these sorts of commitments. And and at least it signals a readiness to have the conversation, you know, uh, the idea that some of these concerns are on their radar. But you're right, you know, a lot of this stuff has been presented before. We had Paris several years ago, and we're not even on track to meet those agreements. So I understand the cynicism. One thing that was encouraging um, actually happened outside COP26, and that was all the protests, especially from the youth. You know, they were pro- protesting that they weren't, they didn't have a place at the table, they weren't represented, and they had a point. But more encouraging, I think, is the fact that they were there at all. And so we have a huge amount of engagement from young folks that aren't in positions of power yet, but will be soon. Yeah, you know, that's another 10 years, and that is another 10 years um, potentially wasted if we don't do anything now. And so they're going to be that much further behind the eight ball when it comes to taking any action, but they're motivated to take action. So I think there is some encouragement, not only from within COP26, but also on the streets outside it. Brian, one of the chapters you have in your book is called Cities, the New Environment, which I found very interesting and, and an interesting way to put it. Cities are our new environment. Talk a little bit about that chapter and what that means. Yeah, it's, it's actually one of my favorite images in the book. It's a full, like, double-page spread on um, the rise of the city. Because in around 1800, there's only three cities in the world with more than a million people. And now we have almost 450. And so it's un- the, the urbanization of the human species is fascinating. Now, I've never really been a big city person at all, um, but I find them interesting because they're a human-created habitat. When you think about what a city is, it's basically people constructing, constructing their own environments, you know, their own habits, like a termite mound or something, or a, <laughs> or a beehive. You know? it, yeah. it's, where, it's not necessarily the ideal one or the most comfortable one to live in, but, you know, in theory, it's, it's the environment best suited for the things we want it to do, which is bring in energy, like assimilate energy from the landscape around it in the form of food, uh, process that energy into products that we want. So there's some commerce involved, there's industry, there's there's human habitation. You know, in a city, you can get food from around the world these days. 
So I find them really, really interesting, uh, especially because they're kind of hard to define. They're hard to draw lines around, which as someone who makes a lot of maps, that's always kind of a fun problem. You know, like where's the city boundaries of Minneapolis, right? It's not just the city limits. Right. right? Your food is coming from potentially, depending on what you choose to buy, your food is coming from California or Chile or, you know, Europe or something. Like, so really the reach of the city extends out that way. The reach of the city also extends into oil fields um, to power that city. And the wherever the electrical comes from in Minneapolis, you know, it's reaching to that power plant and then potentially to the source of energy for that power plant. So I find cities really interesting because they're such a human creation, but they're also kind of a microcosm. You get species from around the world all crammed into the same city you know, um, because people liked them. Um, you get strange new urban ecology dynamics. You have different tree canopies. You have, they're really cool places. And I think we need to not think of cities or towns or ourselves as separate from the rest of the natural world, but just one more piece. And so once you sort of see yourself as embedded in the world and not some sort of external observer... You, you start to think, or at least I did, that, you know, cities need to be thought of as a biome right alongside forests and coral reefs and and grasslands and all the rest. Well, in, in the book, you do say a city as a world unto itself, that cities create climate. So in a sense, if you're in a big city, you're in a different climate zone in itself, which is usually generally a lot warmer and has a lot of things that could are, are man-made. So it seems to me that seems uh, another area which needs to be studied and figured out how do we make this particular environment better. Yeah, exactly. Uh, cities tend to be a lot warmer than the surrounding areas around them, um, uh, oftentimes due to concrete. <laughs> so yeah. it's essentially like you're living 10 degrees south. And that is a pretty interesting little problem. There's a great graphic in, in the book on Washington, D.C., showing surface temperatures in Washington, D.C. at a very high resolution. And what you can see is there's there's a 20-degree difference between a park and then mm-hmm. some uh, um, uh, residential areas only a few blocks away, and it's purely a function of the trees. So we need to approach, especially as the climate changes, we need to approach cities as as a habitat, not as a place where we live, but actually think of them as a habitat and start designing them as such, designing them so that they can support the thing we want to support in that habitat, which is people and all the you know the things that we have around us. So, more trees, um, put a, uh, better water strategies. There's there's a bit in there uh, uh, on Phoenix and some cities in Arizona which have more water related problems. Uh, we need to approach them as uh, for what they are, which is an engineered habitat for us. We are talking with National Geographic explorer Brian Buma about his book, The Atlas of a Changing Climate, a book that's accessible to anyone of any age and understandable methods of telling the story about climate change. What do you want people to get from this book, Brian? What is your ultimate hope? Sure, I have, I have a couple. <laughs> the first is just to enjoy it. Like, the images are beautiful. Oh, they um, are. There are there's not there's several images from from Nat Geo. We license several images from there, but there's also a lot of incredible uh, visualization of data um, from just artists. I mean, they call themselves data visualization specialists or something like that, but what they really are artists. I mean, they're amazing. 
there's satellite imagery, uh, there's um, some, some infographics. There's just, the imagery is great. And so I really do hope folks just straight up enjoy it for what it is. I mean, the world is a beautiful place. Like Minnesota's gorgeous. I've spent some time in Minnesota actually on, on projects for, oh, nice. for Nat Geo and for research um, in, in Minneapolis. Gorgeous spot. So I hope folks at first just enjoy it for what it is, which is how, how beautiful the world is when you look at it at broad scales. The second thing I hope folks get out of it is just a basic understanding of why, why we need to think about climate change um, in, in simple terms and at the scale at which it needs to be thought about. So I hope it gets people out of their own neighborhoods and into thinking about continents and into thinking about hemispheres. Uh, because when you step back, it's it's a beautiful, beautiful system, and there's and it's not changing. There's a lot of complex interactions, but the the basic science behind it isn't isn't very hard. It's just not that complicated. Uh, there, people were calculating how much carbon dioxide would warm the atmosphere in 1896. Like we've known about this for 130 years, pre-computer. This isn't this isn't a complicated set of phenomena. So I hope when folks come out of uh, looking at this and reading at this, they feel like they can approach the topic um, without having to take my word for it, or without having to take you know someone on their favorite news channel's word for it. That they can say, "All right, this is the basics of it. Now, the rest of it follows." And so I, I hope folks come away with that, that they got the basics and the rest of it follows. Well, Brian, I think it's a wonderful book. And as a National Geographic Explorer, where's your next trek? Oh, we have, I have several things. You always have to have a lot of irons yeah. in the fire. Back to Cape Horn, there's some interesting new discoveries um, that have yet to be made down there, as well as hopefully some work further up in the Arctic again. Very good. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. He is the author of The Atlas of a Changing Climate, Brian Biuma. And this is available, I assume, at any regular store or online? Yep. Yep. It's available in local bookstores. You should be able to find it in most larger local bookstores as well as online. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union. With two locations in Mankato since 1934, it pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA more at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org.